it two legs to it. We meet on Friday nights, and we uh, try to assist people with their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Uh, it's a biblically-based recovery program. If you know anybody who is, who is struggling, which that would be every one of us, so you ought to all be there Friday night. But if you, if you know anybody who's struggling with some addictions or some problems, things in their past, just, just you know who that person is, then recommend them to come here on Friday night. Um, it's, it's a great program. I've been helped a lot from it. Uh, my family's been helped from it. And that's why it's such a, an important thing. And I have such a burden for it because those, those people that are in that group mean a lot to me. Some of them are here tonight. You know who you are. I'd like to bring you all up here on stage and brag on you because you mean a lot to me. Uh, and then on Sunday morning, there's a group of work release guys from the Coleman County. Hey, there's my mother. Hey, Mom. It's a group of, mom never goes to church, so it's really, no, I'm just kidding. She goes, she goes to another church. It's just so surprising to see my mom at church. Um, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I can't back out of that. Uh, on Sunday morning, we have a group from the Coleman County Detention Center, guys who are on work release, and they allow them to come to church here. Here's the great thing. We had 20 guys ride the van or the bus on Sunday, and we had 44 in the uh, um, service Sunday morning. Once they leave that service, they come up here, and then we feed them lunch. But here's the thing. The crowd keeps growing. There were 20 people who rode the van. Then there were another 24 people that were in the service. That's all family members and friends and people who come. And then we'll feed 50, 60, sometimes 70 people. That means more people came to the Sunday morning service just to sit with them and be with them. So it's reaching people. It's reaching lives. There are people who come. I watch people transfer from the Sunday morning service with the work release, and then they begin to come on Friday nights with the hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and they become integral parts of the church and contributing members of society, and that's, that's what we want. We want to help people. That's what, that's what this is about, serving people, serving God, loving people, loving God, and serving both. Man, I, I'm glad to be here tonight. I'm glad you're here. We're going to have a word of prayer and then just get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. I always, in this situation, feel like I could have studied more, I could have prepared more, I could have read more. But Lord, it's not about me. It's not about how smart I am. It's not about what I can say, Lord. All we want to do is honor you tonight and glorify you. I pray that everything that we say tonight and everything we do will bring honor and glory to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Man, I am really not sure what to do here. i got to bring this thing on out here. Is that against the rules? Can we do that? All right. Dustin gave me the thumbs up. It must be okay. We're going to be in the book of Romans. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans, and we're going to teach you the whole book tonight. Not really. We are going to talk about... Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, but I, I want to give you a little background information. You know, here's the thing. All of the Bible is for us, but not all of the Bible is to us. Does that make sense? Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. How many of you believe tonight that every commandment of the Bible should be obeyed? Raise your hand if you believe that. Okay? That's not right. I tricked you. If, if you believe that, then my question to you is, where is your ark? If you believe every commandment of the Bible should be obeyed, where is your ark and why aren't you building one? Somebody help me with that. Answer that question. 
What was that? Somebody said it right down here. It wasn't for me, she said. That commandment wasn't written for her. It wasn't written to us. That commandment was written to Noah. And there are things in the Bible that are written there that we can make application about. But it's not necessarily written to us. Does that make sense? Everybody with me on that? Well, here's the thing. There are portions of the Bible that are written directly to you and I. And they are applicable to 2014, right where we live today. One of those books, or actually uh, the, the foundational book of where we live today, in my opinion, a lot of Bible scholars that are smarter than me believe that Romans is the book that the foundation of Christianity should be built upon, should be started with. Uh, Martin Luther made this statement. He said that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament. Now, the book of Romans was obviously written to Gentile people. Romans were Gentiles. We in here tonight are Gentiles. I mean, for the most part, there could be some exceptions to that rule, but as a collective group, we are a group of Gentile people. And in the Bible, there's two options. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And the majority of us are Gentiles. The book of Romans is written by the apostle to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles in verse 13 there. So I say that to say this, the book of Romans is right in our wheelhouse. It's written directly to us. There's not one thing in the book of Romans that doesn't apply right where you live right now. It applies to exactly where we're at, exactly what we're doing. We live in what is called the New Testament church age. Here's the easiest. People quote the verse, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in essence, he is. And I agree with that. And that's a true statement, obviously, because it's from the Scripture. But God deals with man in different time frames, in different ways. See, in the Old Testament, in the beginning, God dealt directly with man. Well, what changes God's dealing is we mess it up. We mess that up. So God began to deal with the nation of Israel. Well, they messed that up. And then uh, you have the Gospels and the transitional history book of Acts. And then God begins in Romans to deal with the church. And that's where we find ourselves here today in the church age of the New Testament. The book of Romans is written directly to us and for us. If you got your little outline, if you didn't get one, you didn't miss much. So don't sweat it, okay? (laughs) I just did that because I felt obligated to do that. Um, Dustin was kidding me. He said, man, this is, this is different. It's not a novel. I said, well, when you get a text at 10 o'clock the night before, you don't have time to write a novel. Here we are. Put that picture on the board up there. For, there's nobody up there. They're gone. I'm here. We're all by ourselves. There's a picture of a boat I want you to put up there if I was kidding, but I I think I'm serious. They're not up there. It doesn't matter. No big deal. The book of Romans in the first three chapters is dealing... Chapter 1 is dealing with a specific group of people. Paul begins to give a description, and it's a, it's a really grisly description of a hedonistic society that's, that's really just ran it off the rails. 
you, you think about the Roman Empire and the, the Romans and how they begin to live. He gives a description of a group of people who've left the natural affection, women with women and men with men. He, he, he gives a, a description of sodomites and the lifestyle that they live. He gives a description of adultery. The, the worst, if we listed the top sins, our top ten sins, just as people, they were all in Romans chapter 1, and that's how these people were living. If I had that picture up there, we'll pretend it's there. It's a picture of a boat. Now, if I could draw you a picture of a boat, or we could put that picture of the boat up there. There's a group of people. I can't wait. This, I'm so happy about that. Do you know how happy I am right now? I'm going to put his saddle on him and ride him for months about this. This boat, on the back of it, is a group of people who are partying it up. They are living high on the hog. They're doing everything on the back of this boat that you can imagine a hedonistic group of people doing. They're smoking things they shouldn't be smoking, drinking things they shouldn't be drinking. All of the girls on the back of the boat don't have on culottes, if you know what I'm saying. Most of you guys, probably some of you, don't even know what culottes are in here. They're scantily clad. The men, they're out of control. It's wild on the back of this boat. Well, in chapter 2, Paul goes on to give a description of a group of people that if they were on this boat, still not up there, if they were on this boat, they'd be sitting on the front of the boat. They would have their life preservers on. They'd be sitting in their seats where they're supposed to be sitting. They'd be keeping their hands and their feet inside the vessel, and they're following all the rules. And they're sitting on the front of the boat, and they're pointing to those people at the back of the boat going, look how they're living. Look at what they're doing. And these really are good people. Why, these people on the front of the boat, they're part of the the Rotary Club and the Lions Club and they're members of the PTA and they're leaders of the Little League teams and they're the, the upstanding members of society. Whatever that is and however you define that. That's who they are. They're up on the front of the boat following all the rules pointing to the people on the back of the boat and they're sickened by them. You know who they are. They're pointing to the people on the back of the boat who have too many tattoos, who play their music too loud, drive their cars too lowered, you know, and hang around in the parking lot at Walmart. That's who they're pointing at, those people back there. I know those people very well, better than I wished I did. They're pointing back there to those people, they're sickened by them. He goes on to the last chapter, last part of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, and Paul describes a group of people if they were on this boat, they'd be driving the boat. If we had a picture up there of a boat, there'd be a steering wheel on it. And these guys are standing there at the boat, and they're driving it. Why, he's got a, a manual that says sailor on it. He's got a, a sailing outfit on. He's got a sailor's hat on. He's even got a tattoo of an anchor on his arm. Everything about him says... I'm a sailor. And he's driving the boat. Now here's the thing. Do you know what these people have in common? 
they're all in the same boat. And that boat, if you looked on the back of it, is the boat of condemnation. Because Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 tells us, if you have your little hand out there, the first thing is we have a description of the heathen. Then we have a description of the moral. Then there's a description of the religious. But then the summation of this thing in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 is that they are all under sin. Let me tell you something tonight. It doesn't matter if you attend the Friday night Hurts, Habits, and Hang-Ups meeting, and your life is a train wreck. Which, by the way, everybody who comes to that meeting is not a train wreck. But that's our perception of them. Okay? We have that group of people. And in this congregation tonight, and I can say this because it's so... It's, I can't see any of you. i got light shining in my face. I don't know who half, three-fourths of you are, so nothing about this is personal. But somebody in here this evening is an upstanding citizen. You're a good person. You pay your bills on time. You never raise your voice at your wife. And if you do that, you're a saint. You never color outside of the lines. But you're still in the boat. I'll tell you this, too, in a church this size, <clears throat> I would venture to say that there is probably a life group leader who's standing at the steering wheel of the boat. I can promise you our deacon's standing at the steering wheel. No, I'm just kidding. There are life group leaders, people who work in first impressions, parking lot guys, there's somebody who is a very religious person who knows all the religious lingo, who knows exactly what they're supposed to say, how to pray, how to look exactly the way a Christian should look, but they're still in the boat. And that's the boat of condemnation. That's what Paul describes here in the first three chapters of Romans. And you know, I'm going to say this parenthetically, as I was growing up, I always liked the way that you know, I always jumped on the bandwagon when I was a kid and a teenager and preachers would turn to Romans chapter 1 and they'd just tear people in Romans chapter 1 up about society and how terrible it is and how we've gone down the drain. And, and trust me, I'm not for those sins and those things that are going on in Romans chapter 1. But keep in mind, don't forget, in chapter 3 of verse 9, Paul put them all in the same place, under sin. He goes on. It makes a conclusion here. And if you've got your Bible open, turn to chapter 3 and verse 28, because I'd like you to read that. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. It says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. You see, after Paul has done all of this describing in the first three chapters, he said, therefore, we conclude. He said, we can finish this whole thing up. And everything that we've studied and said thus far, I can wrap that all up with this. We are justified by faith. The way that you get out of that boat tonight, if you happen to be in it, and I realize it's Wednesday night, but I promise you, if you came up here and stood and looked out here, there's somebody in this congregation tonight who has not gotten out of the boat. And if you still find yourself riding in the boat of condemnation tonight, the only thing that will get you out is faith. 
It won't get you out someday if your good outweighs your bad. There's no dunking you enough times in that baptistry to get you out of that boat. The only thing that will get you out of the boat of condemnation is to put your trust in the work that Christ did on Calvary to pay your sin debt. That and that alone is the only thing that gets you out of the boat of condemnation. So I don't know where you're at tonight, but it's not a difficult thing. It's just a faith issue. And Paul said that we can conclude this whole matter by simply saying that a man is justified by faith. As we go on here, we look at the text in Romans chapter 4 and verse 24. It says, but for us also, now prior to this he gives a description of Abraham and how that Abraham trusted and believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was imputed to him for righteousness. It was placed upon him. He goes on to say here in verse 24, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for, say it together with me, our justification. We keep on reading in verse 5 there. It says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that the tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So my question to you tonight is, what is justification? That's what this whole thing is about, is a man is justified by his faith. And I say to you tonight, forgiveness is a wonderful thing, but it's different from justification. Let me... Let me illustrate it like this. Help me out, Buchanan. All right, here's Buchanan. Buchanan and I, we get into a disagreement because he takes my parking place out there and I get upset about it. And this thing escalates and I hit Buchanan in the mouth. <laughs> That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? And I come to him, it'd be terrible for me after Buchanan got done whipping me. Because as you can see, I'm not very tough. I have on a pink shirt. My wife and I match, by the way. You like that? <clears throat> So after I hit Buchanan in the mouth, I have to come back to him and beg his forgiveness. And he forgives me because he's a good guy and he's a good Christian. But you know what else he is? He's a human being. So therefore, he forgives me, but I'm still guilty of hitting him in the mouth. You follow me? You understand that? You understand the difference between forgiveness? Here's justification. Okay? Are you ready for this? The definition of justification, and you can put this down beside justification, is the removal of guilt. Do you understand that? Now think about that. Let that sink in. I had to think about that for a second. There's a difference between being forgiven for something. If he can forgive me, but I'm still guilty of hitting him in the mouth. It still happened. 
Justification is completely taken away. You see that quote, that's our, my pastor growing up was Dr. Don Lutrick at Fairview Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mom, you can call them, tell them he got quoted tonight. But when I was a kid growing up, he defined justification as just as if I'd never sinned. It's like it never happened. We as human beings don't possess the ability to make me punching Buchanan in the mouth go away. But God can. Do you understand that? God can do that. He can justify you in a way that our human minds just cannot get wrapped around. So why is that so important tonight? Well, here's the thing. With guilt completely removed, here's what we have. Turn your sheet over. The first thing we have in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, and anytime you see a therefore, you've got to see what the therefore is there for. And what it means is because of the previous, the following is true. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have. It's going to give us a list of things here that we now possess. Things that accompany justification. We have, first of all, peace with God. That's the first thing that you have. That's the first thing that is afforded to you because of justification. Now I want you to think back to the boat. Okay, Let's go back to when we were in the boat of condemnation. Regardless... There's a boat. I didn't know what happened. That scared me to death. All right, we're back in this boat of condemnation here. You know what? It doesn't matter where you're at on the boat, right? You're still in the boat. Do you understand that when you're in that boat, James chapter 4 and verse 4 gives us a description. It says, let me read it to you. I don't want to misquote it. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says, No, you... Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, let me tell you what I fear happens in today's neo-evangelicalism. We're so hyped up about getting somebody saved. And I grew up in a hyper, soul-winning crowd that all we wanted to do was get somebody to say a prayer. If I can get this guy to repeat this prayer for me and fill out this card, and maybe I can get him to come to church in a headlock and dunk him in that baptistry, and we can count him. And what we fail to do a lot of times, I believe, is we fail to express and explain and show to the sinner that their sin has offended a holy God. And it doesn't matter where you're riding in this boat. You've offended God. Because none of us are as firmly placed in our position in the boat as we think we are. Except for the people on the back of the boat. They know where they're at. Oftentimes you have people on the front of the boat that probably they're on the back of the boat. They're just hiding it really good. Our sin is nasty. It's grimy. Our sin is an offense to God so much so that James tells us that we were at enmity with God do you understand what that means that means we were at war with him 
We were God's enemy prior to our salvation because our sin was so black, it was so offensive to God. That doesn't mean that he didn't love us as individuals. Obviously, he loved us. He sent his son to die and pay our sin debt for us. But the fact still remains, we must come to grips with the fact that we are sinners and we have offended a holy God. But you know what's great about justification? With that removal of guilt, I now have peace with God. Peace that I could not have with God if that guilt was still there. That's a wonderful thing. Now, think about this. I don't think I properly defined justified for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34 talks about how that... Who, let's read it. You know what, I think I got it covered up. I can't read it. Romans chapter 8 talks about who can charge the elect of God. Now, the elect of God, if you turn to Isaiah 44, is Jesus. It's defined there that Jesus, the Lamb, is God's elect. Okay, so in Romans there, it's saying, who can put something against the, the elect, against Jesus? Romans chapter 8, verse 33 goes on to say that God can, because it is God who justified. So what does that mean? God took our guilt, our sin, and he placed it on Jesus. That's how we were justified. It was removed from us and placed upon Jesus. So, it's not that God doesn't love the sinner, but he hates the sin. Why does he hate the sin? Because that's the very thing that caused him to have to send his son to go through what he went through and what we will celebrate in the days to come. That's the reason he had to experience that awful torture was because that guilt would be placed upon him to pay your sin debt and my sin debt. But as a result, we're justified. We have peace with God. That's the first contribution that we see there in Romans chapter 5. As you go on, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Not only do we have peace with God, but we have present assistance. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're still riding in the boat, I just don't get it. I, do, I, don't, I, I can't comprehend how a lost person gets up and functions throughout a day. And it's not because I'm such a great Christian, it's because I'm such a bad Christian. I don't understand how they can function. I don't understand how they can have, well, any peace. It's amazing to me. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Here's a thing that we struggle with, I think, sometimes in the hoopla and the rah-rah of being a Christian and being involved in such a great ministry like Temple Baptist Church. We come here on Sunday morning, and man, it is wired for sound in here. The doors are pumping. The choir's jamming. Everything's touchdowns and cheerleaders, and let's give Jesus a praise clap on Sunday morning. And I love it. Man, Monday morning rolls around, right? And Tuesday. Every now and then they throw a Wednesday in there. And the daily struggles of life, how do we get through that? 
We have a present assistance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 7, he tells the story. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. Paul says, you know what? I'm a pretty smart guy. That's basically what he said right there. God has given me a lot of mental knowledge and a lot of revelation. And as a result of this revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should become exalted above measure. Paul says, you know what? I have a big ministry. I have a lot going on. I'm a really smart guy. I'm writing books of the Bible. I have throngs of people who look to me for leadership and who follow after me. And to keep me humble, I have a thorn in the flesh. And I don't have any idea what that thorn was. I've heard a lot of different theories. Eyesight, a skin issue, uh, different things you know, from the scripture that people have surmised what could have possibly been that thorn of the flesh. But I'm not sure what it was. But it bothered Paul to the point that he says, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, here's what God said back to Paul after he prayed three times that this would be removed. Now think about this. I want you to wrap your mind around this. I understand that your hangnail or your ingrown toenail is really giving you fits and you've been praying about it. But this is the Apostle Paul, okay? He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He's pretty tight with God, wouldn't you say? He's been praying about this same thing. He's come to God three times on a specific basis. God, please help me with this thorn in the flesh. Please deliver me from this. And this is what God said to him. He said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, this is what Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Here's the thing. No matter how bad things get for us, we have help. The Bible says that my grace is sufficient. It's enough. Grace defined as unmerited favor. It's the thing that you have that you really don't deserve. And in this case, where Paul's talking about it here, it's help that he gets from God that he really doesn't deserve. And we get that on a daily basis simply because we've been justified. Because that guilt has been removed, we now have access to grace. And you know what's great about that verse right there in Romans chapter 5? It says, wherein we stand. That means right here, right now. Whatever you're going through tonight, whatever difficulty that you're facing this evening, God may not remove that thing from you because Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. doesn't say that he'll take the burden away. It says he'll sustain you. He'll hold you up and help you through that difficult time. That's what it means when it says my grace is sufficient. It's enough. This, this present assistance that's been afforded to us as a result of our justification. Not only do we have peace with God and present assistance, 
But I'm thankful in chapter two, uh, verse 2 of that same chapter there it says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I think hope is a very misdefined word biblically. We think of hope as, I hope I get that for Christmas. I hope I get that new fire truck for Christmas. Hope in the Bible is belief with expectation. You're expecting it to happen. You know that it's going to happen. You've been promised that it's going to happen. And therefore, because of justification, this verse right here tells us that we have a place in the future. We have a place in the future. You know what the problem is? We don't enjoy the hope and the belief of the future because too many of us will not release the past. We hang on to that and we drag it around like an albatross. We pull it around like an anchor. And we can't go forward and enjoy hope in the future because we won't release the past. Here's the thing that's so difficult for me to wrap my mind around about guilt. I've made some, if you know my testimony, you've heard it, I made some, some tragic mistakes in my life, ran my life completely off the rails. We're not talking about that tonight. That's a different story. But I disappointed a lot of people with some foolish decisions I made. One of those would be my mother. I'm going to use you for an example tonight, Mom. And I disappointed my mom. And I feel guilt about that disappointment that I caused my mother. But do you understand that there's probably not a person on this planet that wants me to be happy more than my mother? You understand that? So why would I carry around guilt for things that I did to my mother when right now all she wants is me to be happy? And I can't be happy because I feel guilty about something that I did that caused her disappointment. You see how circular that is? And we continue to drag those things around and we have no hope for the future because we won't let go of the past. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13? He said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Let's remember who wrote this now. This is Paul. Do you remember what Paul was doing prior to his conversion? He was killing Christians. He was instrumental in the stoning of Stephen. Paul was holding the coats and cheering them on. That guy right there, throw a rock at him. Paul was here today. He'd probably do that again with our deacon, but it would be understandable. I'm just kidding. Paul, he murdered Christians. That's what he did. So for Paul to say, I've got to forget those things that are in the past. I've got to forget those things that are behind me. Why does he need to do that in order to? He says, reaching forth into those things which are before. Verse 14, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see, we have a place in the future. God has something specific for us. 
He has something that he wants to do with your life. He has something that he wants to orchestrate in your life and use you in a special way. But if you don't let go of those things in the past and start pressing forward, you'll never get to that place in the future that God has for you. You're destroying the hope that has been bestowed upon you as a result of your justification because you won't let go of the past. We've been justified. That guilt's been removed. But we want to put it back. We want to hang on to it. We want to drag it around with us. There's got to come a point in your life where you let these things go. Every single person who's had a tragedy or a failure in their life had to come to a point where they said, all right, at this point, I'm letting this go and I'm going forward. Everybody who's made something of their life after a great mistake had to come to a point where they decided to move forward. We drag these things from our past around us and we refuse to let them go. Hey, it's not just guilt that's in our past. Some of it, we talk about this stuff a lot on Friday night, so it's repetitive for some of you guys. Just hang with me. Some of you guys can't get to the future and you can't focus on the hope because you won't let go of some bitterness. Somebody's wronged you. Somebody's done you bad. Legitimately. Some of you were just big boys and girls in here. It's all adults. Children are somewhere else. Let's just say it like it is. I mean, I'm not going to be completely forward, but you'll figure it out. Some of you were treated and done inappropriately as a child. That's a horrible thing. But here's the thing that's unfortunate about that. You're bitter about it, and I understand that. But you continue to let that person that wronged you as a child destroy your life as an adult because you won't let go of it. There's a great there's a great chance that that person's dead and not even around anymore, but you continue to let them destroy and wreck your life because you won't let that go and go forward. You won't reach out for that place in the future that God has for you. You won't release those things in the past and appreciate the contributions and the benefits of justification because you're stuck in the past. Not only do we see a place in the future, but man, this one's really exciting. Verse 3 of chapter 5 in Romans says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that the tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. James said to the first church in Jerusalem, he said in James chapter 1 verse 2, he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect, entire, wanting nothing. I want to go back to read this. Something just hit me in that chapter, verse 3 there. It says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing. We know. Number four, that we have purpose in suffering. We know that the things that we go through, the difficulties that we face, the valleys that we walk through, the different temptations and tribulations that are put before us, there is a purpose for those. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm not a big uh, 
a big fan of just random working out. I know you're going to find that hard to believe. Now listen, I want you to think about something. I'm, about, I'm really only about 20 pounds overweight, okay? But there's two cameras on me, and they both add 10 pounds apiece, so that puts me at 40. It looks like I'm 40 pounds overweight because of the two cameras. I'm not a big fan of just working out to be working out. I hate Josh Stansel. <laughs> he works out because he digs it, okay? But I can wrap my mind around doing it for a purpose. Now, I remember there was a time when my wife and I, because of circumstances out of our control, we spent a good bit of time apart. Several years. I didn't see her. We've been married 24 years. She's a lucky woman. So leading up to seeing her for that first time, I was a working out machine. I'm talking about jumping rope, running, wind sprints, doing push-ups. I mean, just working out like crazy, eating right. If it tasted good, I spit it out. That was my diet. I had a purpose. I had a reason to go through that suffering so I could stand it. I could take it. Right now, I have no reason, so I can't get myself fired up for it. We as Christians are not suffering and going through the things that we go through for just kicks. There is a reason. And it, it's because God is trying to work something out in your life. He's trying to do something with your life. And in order to do that, to get you to this spot over here, you must travel this path here to get to there. It's kind of like the little boy that's sitting on the floor. His grandmother's doing needlepoint. He looks up and from the floor he says, Granny, that's a mess. What is that? He reaches down, picks up the little boy, and puts him in her lap. Now he can see the picture, and it's a beautiful picture that she's doing needlepoint. She can, he can see it from her perspective. You see, sometimes our lives feel and look, and we think it's a mess, and what in the world is God doing to us? But it's because we're looking at it from a temporal perspective. We don't see the eternal effects and the things that God's doing in our life. And if you'll wrap your mind around the fact that the difficulties that you go through and the problems that you face, they are for a purpose. And God's doing something with your life. All of this we see in Romans chapter 5 are because of our justification. Because of that guilt being removed, it changes everything. I'm glad tonight that I'm forgiven for my transgressions that, and that my sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. But i got to tell you, I'm a little more excited about the fact that my guilt has been removed. It's not even there anymore. Not only do we have purpose and suffering when we look at verse 5 in that same chapter it says and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 Jesus tells the disciples as he is ascending to heaven but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You understand tonight that we not only 
one of the things that comes along with our justification is the promise of a helper. We're not in this alone. We're not facing these difficulties and these battles and these problems and these issues, these thorns in the flesh. We're not facing that on our own. We have a helper. The problem is we don't tap into that source and get that help that's afforded to us. Do you understand tonight in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 it tells us that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Now, help me out. Is Easter this Sunday or next Sunday? I See, I come to church every Sunday, so Easter, just another, I mean, it's not just another Sunday, but you know what I mean. My brother's a pastor, and he got up one time and he said, hey, I just want to tell everybody, he got it at Easter, he said, I just want to tell everybody Merry Christmas, because I know that's probably the next time I'm going to see some of you. <laughs> We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus here in two weeks. And that's a great thing. The Holy Spirit walked in one day on that third day. He said, come on, Jesus, let's get up. we got work to do. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was risen. You know that Romans chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that we have access to that same power? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we have access to on a daily basis. When Jesus left, he sent that Holy Spirit. And you know what? The Bible says, here's the thing. The day that you got saved, the day that you put your trust in Christ, the moment that you said, I'm a sinner, I've offended a holy God. I'm getting out of this boat of condemnation and I'm putting my trust in Christ and the work that he did on Calvary to save me. At that point, the Bible says that he that hath not the spirit hath not life. So at that point, when I had life, I also had the spirit. It doesn't come subsequent to my salvation. I don't have to squinch up and hunker down and say some special kind of prayer to get the Holy Spirit to indwell. No, I got him right then at salvation. Here's the great thing. He's not a bully. Do you understand that? He's going to work in your life and lead you and control you as much as you allow him to. We talk about this a lot on Friday night, or we have been here lately. If you go to Ephesians where it says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Now, if a person gets to consuming too much alcohol and he starts stumbling around and slurring his words and texting people at 3 o'clock in the morning, what's causing him to do that? That's right. Now, listen, nobody in their right mind texts their girlfriend from high school and asks her why she broke up with him unless something else is controlling him. Would you agree with that? It's the alcohol that's controlling him and making him do that. And Paul was using that as an example. It's a control issue. So he says, be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. If I'm filled with alcohol, what's controlling me? If I'm filled with the Spirit, what's controlling me? It's not an amount issue, it's a control issue. I have all of the Spirit that I'm ever going to get at the day I got saved. The issue is, how much of the Spirit am I allowing to control me? That's the issue. We have the promise of a helper. 
The problem is, then when you turn over to Colossians, the same description that's given for a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, they'll, the, the, the outward expression of that is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing a melody in your heart to the Lord, for giving praise and thanksgiving, that same description of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit in Colossians is given to a person who is in the Scripture. So how do we be controlled by the Holy Spirit? Through the Scripture. The more Scripture I have in me, the more Bible I have in me, the more I have memorized, the more opportunity the Scripture has to control me, to lead me, to guide me. You must put the sword in the sheath in order for the Holy Spirit to be able to use it. Amen. The scripture is just like a bridle that you put on a horse. You put that bridle on the horse and now I can lead him wherever I want him to go. But we won't put the bridle on for the Holy Spirit to be able to lead us because we don't put any bullets in the gun. It's scripture. I've told this story a lot on Friday night and Sunday morning. Years ago, I was in the car business. I was a sales manager. Thought I was a big shot. Wore nice clothes to work every day. Fancy ties, cufflinks, expensive suits. It was the thing. I'd sit up on this sales tower and talk crazy to salesmen and boss people around because that was what you did. And I kind of liked it. That's why I don't do it anymore. <laughs> and there was this little girl that was working the switchboard over, over there who was not ugly. That's all I'm going to say. She was not ugly. <clears throat> and so this girl began to talk to me, just kind of randomly, in between me working deals with car salesmen. And I'd been reading in Proverbs the chapter about the wanton woman. And it gave a description of how she would flatter you with her eyes and she would flatter you with her lips. And this girl was looking at me kind of funny. And I was uncomfortable with that. Then she says, I sure like that tie you're wearing. And it was like one of those tornado sirens going off in my head. She flattereth with her lips. I said, really? Thank you. My wife bought that for me. Boom! I took off. I'm gone. Yeah. Guess what? Had I not been reading Proverbs, the Holy Spirit would not have had the opportunity to remind me that she was up to no good. I might have walked down there and said, hey, really? You like that tie? No kid. I like that scarf you're wearing. And here we go. Seemed innocent to begin with. But it opened the door and gave the opportunity. But if the Holy Spirit is leading you, if he, you're allowing him to be your helper, you can avoid those situations. The problem is we don't give him the reins. We have a promise of a helper as a result of that justification. Because that guilt has been removed, I have peace with God. Because that guilt is no longer there, I have present assistance. I have some help to get through the things I'm going through. Because that guilt has been removed, I have a place in the future. I have a purpose in suffering. I have a promise of a helper. But you know what? And I just use this one because it starts with a P and I thought it'd be funny but it's true. Verse 9 says much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Not only do I have a promise of a helper, but I have a parachute from wrath. If I'm on a plane going down, I want a parachute so I can escape that destruction. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall 
be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I do not have to worry about any of that because I'm on his team. And when he removed that guilt at my justification, I do not have to fear the wrath of God because I'm one of his children. I'm on his side. I'm on his team. These people that get all wigged out and nervous and want to build uh, shelters and save up cases and crates of bottled water. Hey, if that's your thing, go for it. But that stuff doesn't make me nervous because I don't think I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be here. I'm checking out. At his appearing, I'm going to meet him in the clouds. I do not have to fear that wrath because that's going to be poured out upon those who didn't trust in the gospel. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 verse 16 that man will be judged according to the gospel. Paul has defined the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the death, burial, and resurrection. The good news of the gospel of grace. What have you done with that tonight? Have you put your trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to pay your sin debt? If you haven't, you're facing a certain wrath. If you have, you have a parachute. You get to escape that wrath. You get to dodge all of that. Now, let me sum it up like this. You can go ahead and come on. We're fixing to pray. We're going to pray for the building. We're going to have everybody come down in just a second. But I want, I want to see if I can sum it all up like this. Here's justification. Man goes out, murders another person. The man who is murdered's father hunts down the murderer, apprehends him, and turns him over to the authorities. No, I'm sorry. He apprehends him and he kills him. You know what that is? That's vengeance. Now, he could hunt this guy down, apprehend him, and turn him over to the authorities. That would be justice. Or he could hunt this man down, apprehend him, and let him go. That'd be mercy. But this is what Jesus, this is what God did for us. He hunted that murderer of his son down. And he apprehended him. And he made him his son. And he gave him everything that his murdered son would have had. And he put him in his place and made him his son. That's justice. That's justification. That's what God did for us. He put us in his murdered son's place. It's, it, we're the reason that Jesus suffered and died. Because our sin debt had to be paid for. We could never pay it. The song goes, I owed a debt I could not pay. And he paid a debt he did not owe. And as a result of that tonight, I can enjoy justification. The removal of my guilt and all of the wonderful things that go along with it. I encourage you tonight, if you've never experienced that, I beg you before this night's over to find somebody to help you with nailing that down. Every head's bowed and every eye's closed. I feel like there's no way. I'm, I'm compelled. I know it's Wednesday night. But I must ask, is there anybody in here tonight that you'd say, you know what, 
I'm just not sure. I'm not sure I got this nailed down. Nobody's looking but me. I know it's a Wednesday night crowd, but is there one person here and here tonight that would say, Brother Jeff, I just don't know if I died, I'd go to heaven. Is there anybody like that? We just want to pray for you. I see one hand. Anyone else? Now, based upon the testimony of those that are in here,